Welcome to Bible Foundations. I am your host, Ben Dixon. Thank you for joining us. This is a podcast where we go through books of the Bible one chapter at a time. We are studying the book of James, and today we are in James chapter 5. So grab a Bible, open it to James chapter 5, get comfortable. But before we open the Bible today, let me go ahead and remind you where you can listen to this and where you can watch this. If you just go to our YouTube channel, which is called Ignite Global Ministries, there's a playlist. You can click on it and you can watch all of our previous chapters of whatever book of the Bible you want to study. Also, you can go to iTunes or Spotify. Just type in Bible Foundations with Ben Dixon and you can subscribe. Please do share this with your friends so that everybody can join us as we study through the Bible together. Again, God bless you. James chapter 5. Let's pray and open the Bible together. Father, thank you for your word. I pray for everybody watching and listening today. Would you open your word to us? I pray that you would shine light on it. You would breathe into it so that we could obey it. I thank you for your word. We're grateful today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, hey, as I normally do when we first start with a chapter, there's a couple things that are really important. First, we want to review where we were last week when we were looking at the previous chapter. And again, we've been going through the book of James, and now we're at the last chapter, chapter 5. But let's review quickly. In James chapter 4, we focused on three sections. So we broke it up in three parts. In the first section of James 4, we talked about drawing close to God. And this is where James is telling his readers that they need to submit to God and not the enemy or a worldly path. We discussed that in detail. The second section that we looked at was where James is talking about we need to stop judging other people. And this was a prevalent sin, probably is a prevalent sin today, where they were overly criticizing and labeling other believers and also non-believers. And James more or less said, knock it off. And he told them that this was not the path of a godly person. And last but not least, the last section of James 4, he really is talking about putting God first and putting God first in front of your plans, your business, your schedule. He's talking to business owners and he's telling them that, you know, you need to be mindful that you're not making promises to which you cannot deliver. In other words, if God is first, you need to say things like, God, if God is willing or if God permits, I will do this and this and this. But in reality, because they're facing persecution and difficulty and really wanting to glorify God first, he was saying, look, you need to have this tension built into your life as you look forward into the future and that he is first and that needs to be evidenced by the words that you share. And so we looked at all of those things and that last section about business owners, it bleeds right into chapter five. Now we're gonna break chapter five up again in a couple sections. And the first we're gonna look at in chapter five, verse one through six, we're gonna talk about a rebuke to the rich who James is calling the wicked. We're going to look at that. The second section is James 5, 7 through 11, and we're going to talk a little bit about patience and suffering. And then for a quick moment, James 5, 12, we're going to look at not making false vows. That was something they did. And then finally, we're going to land on the importance of prayer. And so this is what James 5 comprises of. And so let's go ahead and read James 5, verse 1 through 6, as we look at his rebuke to the rich who he calls the wicked. And here's what the Bible says. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries, which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up for your 
stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of the armies is what that means. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure, and you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Here is what we are looking at today. James is absolutely indicating that there is a judgment coming on those who have acted in a way where he calls it wicked, is literally what he calls it. Now, scholars do debate over this portion of scripture as to whether or not James is talking to believers or non-believers, but I think the evidence here is pretty clear. In James 4, he's talking to believers because he's teaching them how to speak. He's teaching them how to posture themselves as business owners, Christian business owners. Now he's giving a rebuke, but he's giving one without any sort of opportunity for repentance. And so it's just really like, here's a rebuke towards those that are mistreating and mishandling what they have. And so it seems to be quite clear that they're not believers. And the four things that we'll look at that he's indicting the wicked on are these these things here. They have hoarded wealth, uh, specifically in the, in the day of judgment, or he's talking about these last days. Second, they have not paid their workers properly. Third, they have lived in luxury and self-indulgence in the face of oppression. They've allowed people to go without, and then they lived uh, in ple- uh, pleasure. They've lived in luxury in the face of people living in lack. And fourth, they have played a part in the murder of innocent people by either what they've done or what they've not done. So let's go ahead and look at verses 2 and 3. He's saying, Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, uh, your gold, your silver have rusted, their rust will be a witness against you, and you will consu- it will consume your flesh like fire. It's in these last days that you stored up for yourself treasure. Now, you might remember this, but when somebody says something is moth-eaten, it means that a garment has been sitting in, let's say, a closet for so long that it is literally eroding. And this is evidence that somebody has far too much than they need because they have things that never get used. Now, you might remember in their culture, garments were actually used as a form of payment. So it wasn't gold and silver, but it was sort of like a third way of paying somebody for something. It was an investment. It was worth money, particularly garments that were very expensive. And so he's using this as uh, as sort of evidence to say, you guys have a lot. You have not only a lot of money, like we have money, but you have a lot of, uh, you've accumulated a lot that really talks about your wealth and you have so much that it literally is eroding. And so this is evidence, the the things that he's saying is that you've got too much gold, too much silver, that um, it, it would be tarnished. Now, gold and silver don't tarnish the same way that these other metals do, but he's using this sort of metaphorically and he's saying like, you've got so much that like it's actually going bad. And so he's saying, you have a lack of love and care for people around you. That this, this is what happens when you hoard up wealth. And secondly, they've lived like Christ was not returning at all. And that's why he says in these last days, look at the way you're living in light of what is coming. You don't want to be on the wrong side of what Jesus is doing. But he's certainly pointing at the fact that these cannot be believers because that's what you do when you're not a believer is you tend to live however you feel like, however you want. Uh, let's eat, drink, 
and sleep, for tomorrow we die. And so that's clearly a representation of a person that doesn't know Christ and isn't living in light of his coming. In verse 4 and 6, he goes into talking about the not paying the laborers who have worked the fields. He says, Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which have been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So there's several things here in this passage which we've kind of indicated, but the rich farmers are not paying their workers. And no matter where you look at this in the Bible, this is clearly an injustice done before God and to man. And so when you don't pay your workers uh, and then you store up wealth in the face of that type of injustice and oppression, that is an egregious sin before God. It's condemned in both the Old and the New Testaments. And clearly the Bible says, vindication is mine, says the Lord. There will be judgment for people that live like this without repentance and restitution. We can be sure of that. And James is pulling no punches when he speaks this way. And so these farmers and these business owners have lived luxurious lives at the expense of other people. They have no problem with the oppression that they are causing. They're the causation of it. It's one thing to have oppression in the world and add more to that. It's another thing to be the causation of that oppression. And James gets to the end of this where he gives this final charge against the rich and that they have murdered innocent people or become complicit in that. And this means that they have dragged people to court and they have allowed accusations against those that they owe money to uh, because they can lie and they have standing in court. They've allowed these accusations that are false to condemn them to death. We see the same thing referenced in James chapter 2 and verse 6. And you just have to stop and think, of the, think about that for a second. There are people that are not only oppressing, not only living in luxury at the expense of others, but they're literally allowing false accusations and allegations to go against these people to which they owe money, and it condemns them to death. I mean, this is a type of wickedness that requires a seared conscience. And that's what Paul says to Timothy in his first letter. He talks about people that have a seared conscience. And so clearly James is bringing this up because the people he's writing to, some of them are oppressed, some of them are business owners and have wealth, and in this rebuke, it will clearly speak to the business owner that has money that cannot align themselves with these people, and it's speaking to the oppressed, those that have been under this um, serious injustice, and saying, here's how God sees this, he sees you for sure. So the second section that we want to look at here in James chapter 5 is going to be verse 7 through 11. And this is where he shifts and talking about patience and suffering. And clearly he's talking about those who are under this oppression and this injustice from those he calls the wicked in the previous verses. And so let me go ahead and read those passages, verse 7 through 11. And here's what James says. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient against one another, or sorry, you too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured 
You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Clearly, not like those who are committing these incredible, egregious sins against them, keeping them under oppression. So what is James doing here? He's appealing to those that are going through suffering and are living under oppression, and he wants to talk to them about not taking vengeance into their own hands. He advises them against it because, number one, the Lord, who is the judge, when he comes back for the harvest of the earth, he is going to deal with every person that is under his wrath, that is not under his grace. And those people that have committed these crimes and committed these sins against his people who have done right and righteously, God himself is going to deal with that. So he's saying, vindication is mine, saith the Lord, do not do this yourself, God will do it. But he gives three examples of how to live in the type of patience that would be required for them because clearly they're dealing with suffering and difficulty. And the first example is that of a farmer. Now, in that region, a farmer counted on two rain seasons in order to have a fully mature crop. And the first was the early rains, and that's October and November. But you'd have those rains, and the crop would begin to grow in such a way where toward the spring, it would look like it was mature, but it wasn't. And so what you had in the late spring is you would need the late rains is what they would call them. And after, a few weeks after those rains had come, the crop was fully mature. And so you'd put the sickle to the harvest and you'd collect all, all of your crop and be able to sell it and, uh, and, and live uh, based on that. That was their livelihood. That was where they derived their income. And he was saying the patience of the farmers, they cannot harvest too soon. All right, because there's a time that is permitted for them to have a fully mature crop. And he's saying that to the believer. There is a time where God himself is going to put his sickle to his harvest and he's going to deal with everything. There is chaff, so to speak, and that's, that's what's going to get burned up and is not useful as a part of the harvest. So he's using this sort of harvest end times metaphoric language to say, don't deal with this and the wicked on your own. God will deal with it. Be patient like a farmer. Number two, be patient like the prophets. And the prophets spoke the truth and they stood for righteousness even in the face of great violence done against them, but they never resorted to violence themselves. So they are an example of patience. And number three, he talks about Job. Job persevered under great trial and is seen in history as somebody that uh, everyone knew he, had, he went through intense suffering, great difficulty, and yet he is an example to that whole community on how to live in a way where you're right and righteous before God and you give this over to the Lord. Now, the character of the Lord is a great comfort, comfort to people that are in suffering. And this is why he, he talks about it, that God is near, God is coming, and you need to be mindful and consumed with the coming king, not with your oppression and your suffering. And this is really comforting for people that are going through that who are not going to resort to violence. They're not going to do what zealots did, although they might be tempted to do so and try to overthrow their own oppression. They are taking great comfort in the love and the care and the ministry of their king, knowing that they can receive that comfort today, but that uh, the consummation of his kingdom will bring about vindication and, and, and they, they, they will be comforted by that, that God is mindful of them. But he shifts from there into verse 12 and he talks a little bit about 
not making false vows. Now, let me read that passage because it kind of seems like he throws this in um, as sort of a, in, in a sandwiched way because there's some sections that talk about patience and suffering, and then he goes into prayer. But right before that, he says this in verse 12, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes, your no is to be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. He says, above all. So apparently there was some sort of practice in their time, and Jesus alluded to this in Matthew chapter 5, where a person would swear to repay another person for the harm that was done to them. And in doing so, they would invoke the name of God. They would swear by the name of God that they would do such and such a thing. And this practice is being corrected by James. He's like, first of all, you don't want to do those things. And second of all, you don't want to say that you're going to do those things. Jesus, again, alludes to that in Matthew chapter 5. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Do what is right and righteous and stick to that. Don't go outside of those boundaries. God will take care of the rest. And then in the last verses, he moves into talking about the importance and the power of prayer. I just want to read those verses, verse 13, and we'll talk a little bit about prayer. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Of course, some of them were. Uh, Then he must pray. Is any cheerful? He's to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he is committed to sin, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man will accomplish much." Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that one who turns a sinner from the air of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. He talks about prayer. And I love how James sums up his letter simply by focusing on the issue of prayer. In other words, don't grumble, don't complain, don't seek to vindicate yourself, don't make a false vow, don't be hearers of the word only, be doers of the word, hold your tongue. And in James chapter 1, he's kind of alluding to that here. He's talking about, right, like the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, that we need to be people that are listening and not just speaking. We need to do what then? Instead of just not say anything, not do anything, what do we do? He says, those who are suffering need to pray. Is anyone suffering, cheerful or sick? Then he prescribes prayer. Now he gives them detailed instruction for how to pray for the sick because he moves from the suffering and he moves from the happy person to those that are Uh, that are sick with an ailment or some kind of disease or whatever it might be. He gives some simple instructions. And the first, he says, if anyone is sick, let them call the elders of the church. Now, this is really important because it's active faith. It's not something that says, hey, if you're sick, you pray. He says, call the elders of the church. Now, one time I was reading this passage and I had a revelation that if I'm sick, that it's not something that uh, I'm waiting for another person to ask me if I need prayer. I need to know how it is that I call the elders of the church to agree with me in prayer. You remember the passage where it says, everyone who came to Jesus, he healed. So he healed all that came to him. He didn't heal all that were around him. 
He didn't heal all that he walked by. The Bible says he healed everyone who came to him. Now, this is a very similar principle in that people who came to Jesus were expressing active faith. It says here that people who call the elders of the church will receive that prayer. And so here's what we know. Faith may not be the only ingredient in the sick being healed, but it is certainly an important piece, if not a primary piece, of how sickness is healed through the power of prayer. And so if you're sick, if I'm sick, we need to call the elders of the church. This is why at our church, one of the things that we do is we have our pastors and our prayer ministries ministers up at the front at the end of every service. That's why people don't need to figure out how do I call people for prayer? You come up front. That's their active faith. So our job sometimes as pastors, at least my job, is to make sure people know how they can do that. How do I call the elders of the church? Who do I call? How do I call? So we clarify that process so it makes it simple. But a person has to come. A person has to respond in faith. Now, I'm not saying that's the, always the way it's done, but it certainly here is what's encouraged. And then it says the elders are to pray over that person. We come into agreement for that sickness to be healed. Thirdly, the elders are to anoint the sick person with oil in the name of the Lord. We do that here at our church, but the oil is that representation of the work of the Holy Spirit. We see that all the way back in, um, in the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, where the priests were anointed with oil, and this was indicative of consecration being set apart by God's Spirit for the work of God. And so we use oil it is very symbolic in that we acknowledge that this is the anointing of the Spirit of God, and so it is the Lord doing the healing, not a man, not a person, not a woman, but the Lord. And so we anoint with oil in the, in the name of the Lord. The sick person is to confess their sins, if they have any, that they haven't confessed, and they do that one to another that they might be healed. Now, this is an interesting thought. But what we're talking about here is if sometimes there's a sin that's connected to some kind of physical ailment. And even if that's not the case, the idea is that Jesus cares more about our soul than our physical body being healed. Why? Because us being clean before God is of first priority to the Lord. We have actually stories where Jesus forgave someone's sins in Mark chapter 3, I think it is, or, or it could, yeah, it's Mark chapter 3. In the beginning of Mark chapter 3, there's a story where four guys lowered their friend before Jesus, and Jesus first forgave the guy's sins, and then he healed his body. Why did he do that? Because his priority was always a person's soul and their spirit, their eternal condition before God, their internal condition before God. That's the priority first. Secondarily, the physical condition, which is temporary. And so here it is, we need to cleanse ourselves of sins. Jesus is the one that forgives us. 1 John 1, 9 says, if he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, if what? If we confess our sins. So when we confess our sins, he forgives and he cleanses. And so this is what James reminds us of to do as we're posturing ourselves to receive prayer when we're sick. And so the promise of the passage though is this, is that God will heal the sick person and raise them up through the prayer of faith. Now the prayer of faith is not some psychological certainty. It's an active posture before God where we ask the Lord in the midst of our pain. When we ask the Lord in the midst of our pain, God answers, God responds. And we just simply do this, what? We follow the Bible. Friend, I wanna encourage you today that scripture is given to us for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages has come. I wanna encourage you to follow the prescription of the Bible 
That's what we want to do. We don't need to complicate this. We don't have to have a theology degree. When we read the scriptures, we want to say this. If I'm sick, I'm going to call the elders of the church. If I have sin in my life, I need to confess that sin, that the Lord would heal me. There'd be no blocking between my relationship with God and my spiritual and my physical. They're not separate. I'm one person. And so if there's something going on between me and God, I'm not just asking for something from him, I am someone to him. So just like a son or a daughter would come to their father, you know, you don't have to qualify anything about your kids before you touch them, heal them, help them. But in our relationship with God, it's complex because things are not just physical. There also is the spiritual. There's that realm of the soul and there's things going on in there. And we want to be utterly clean before God. And so we take very seriously our posture before the Lord and that everything is in the light as he is in the light. First John talks about this in chapter one of his first letter. So we want to follow the prescription of the Bible. And as we do that, friends, I want to encourage you, you're going to find that God will answer his word. He is faithful to his word. He is faithful to his character and he is faithful to his people. And I want to encourage you with that today. And as we close Bible Foundations, I just want to pray that God would give us a heart to obey. That's really what we want. It's simple. Obey the Word of God. Would you pray with me today as we close chapter 5 of the book of James? Father, thank you for your Word. I just ask for one thing. Give us a heart to obey you. Just like Solomon, uh, just like David prayed for his son Solomon, that that you would give him a heart to obey. I pray for the same thing for us. Give us a heart to obey you in everything that we do, everything that we say, to love you, serve you, and glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Thank you for tuning in. We've completed the book of James. What an accomplishment. We're going to be moving on to 1 Peter. I'm looking forward to studying that with you. So keep tuning in to Bible Foundations. God bless you, friends. 